Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Uh, Welcome to today's Commonwealth Club presentation. My name is Dr. Patrick O'Reilly, Chair of the Psychology Forum, and I will be moderating today's program. And I'm truly pleased and delighted to introduce tonight's speaker, Dr. Ricardo Munoz. Dr. Munoz was named Distinguished Professor of Clinical Psychology at Palo Alto University in 2012, where he is the founding director of i for health the Institute for International Internet Interventions for Health. The website is i for the number i for health paloaltou.edu. He is professor of psychology emeritus at the University of California, San Francisco, where he taught and did clinical work and research for 35 years. He has served on three U.S. National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine Consensus Committees on Prevention of Mental Disorders. He is a fellow of the American Psychological Association, the Association for Psychological Science, and the American Association for the Advancement of Science. If you have questions for Dr. Munoz, please use the text chat feature, and as time allows, he will answer them at the end of his talk. So without further ado... uh, Please welcome Dr. Munoz. Thank you very much for that introduction, Dr. O'Reilly. It is a great pleasure to be addressing the Commonwealth Club uh, this evening. Uh, I'm going to be sharing work that my colleagues and I have done for over 50 years now, um, focused on the prevention and treatment of depression. And my, um, my, the title of my talk is uh, On the Road to a World Without Depression. And the case I'm going to make is that in terms of knowledge, we are now halfway down this road to a world without depression. But in terms of practice, we're barely getting started. The main points I want to make tonight are that uh, depression is a major burden of disease for the whole world. It's the number one cause of disability worldwide. I'm not going to spend a lot of time going into details as to how much depression affects us. I think most of us are very aware that depression can be a a very uh, burdensome kind of condition. I'm going to be focusing more more on the fact that we now have effective treatments, but even though we do, the number of cases in our communities is not going down. If anything, it has been going up in the last few years. We also have effective preventive interventions, but we're not using them. And finally, I want to focus on how we could harness technology to reach more people throughout the world. So my conclusions are, again, that because of the knowledge we currently have, we could reduce depression by half. And what we need to do is put that knowledge into practice and work on finding out how to reduce the remaining half. So... I recommend that you get your smartphone cameras ready because I'll be sharing some QR codes that will link you to some of the websites that I'll be referring to. Uh, You can point your smartphone cameras to the QR codes and it'll get you to those sites automatically. And of course, please come back to the the talk again so you can continue to hear what my message is tonight. So the United Nations has reported that depression is the number one cause of disability worldwide. And this is why we need to address depression and use the knowledge we've gathered over the last 50 years. 
I'm going to begin by sharing some slides from one of my colleagues, Dr. Jan Laking, who's a professor of clinical psychology at Palo Alto University. Uh, he uh, gave a talk in 2015, and I'm going to be sharing these slides with his permission. He has been doing a work on a mood screener since both of us were at the University of California, San Francisco, and now we're doing this at Palo Alto University, of course, in which he has, he's offering a free mood and depression screener as a research uh, study. If you're interested in uh, getting to that uh, website, you, again, you can use the QR code uh, on the bottom left here. And the study is being done in English, Spanish, Chinese, Russian, and Arabic. Because it's a research study, people need to provide informed consent, which means that only people 18 years of age or above can actually provide consent and participate in the study. He has reached people all over the world. 231 countries and territories are represented in his data. And we've had literally hundreds of thousands of people come to the site and tens of thousands of them have signed consent and participated and screen, have been screened for current and, and past depression. Now, as I mentioned, they have to be 18 years old or, or older to participate. And just wanted to point out here on the bottom that a large percentage of them, between 13 and 33% of the, of the people who come to the site are under 18, so they cannot participate. And it's really important that we notice because depression begins for many people during the teenage years. So the numbers I'm going to be sharing with you do not represent adolescents. Now, what he's been doing is been looking at the rates of depression and suicide for the people who come to the site. They look on Google for something on depression, and then they come to the site. And as you can see here, between 50% to 70% of the people who enter the study meet criteria for major depression. And between 7 and 20% have actually had a suicide attempt in the past two weeks. This is obviously very, very concerning. And one of the things that Dr. Lakin has been asking people is whether they have gotten treatment for, for depression and, and for their suicidal ideation. So how many report that they have current treatment, either antidepressants or psychotherapy? Of those who screen positive for current depression, between 9% and 22% have received any kind of treatment. And for those who are likely or very likely to commit suicide in the next few days, the rates are again between 9% to 28%. That means that the vast majority of people who come to this website throughout the world have not received any kind of treatment for depression or even for suicidal ideation. Now, we have advanced in treatment. Research studies can, uh, show that um, evidence-based treatments can help about two out of three people to feel better. And if the first treatment doesn't work, you can try additional treatments, and most people with depression can find a treatment that will actually help them. But treatments used routinely often show drift. In scientific studies, randomized controlled trials, the patients are recruited and, and have to sign consent, um, allow themselves to be randomized to different treatments and so on. So these patients are a special uh, group of, of uh, people suffering from depression as opposed to people out in the community in general. And the therapists who take part in these treatments are 
trained very carefully and supervised to make sure that the treatment that they are administering is done exactly as intended. Once these treatments go out into routine clinics or private practices, the therapists tend to drift, meaning that they do not administer the therapies exactly as they were done in research studies. But if they're provided additional training and supervision, therapists can greatly improve outcome. The UK has been conducting a uh, an initiative called IAPT, which stands for Improving Access to Psychological Therapies. What they've done is in the UK, as you know, they have the National Health Services, which provides uh, healthcare to anybody in the population. So what they did in this uh, particular initiative is to see what proportion of patients who were receiving psychological, evidence-based psychological therapies uh, actually recovered from depression, meaning they no longer met criteria for a serious clinical depression. And when they began this uh, study in 2008, 2009, only 20 to 30% of the patients uh, actually recovered. Now, many more got better, but recovered and no longer met criteria, 20 to 30%. Now, over the years, they began training therapists to do these uh, treatments as they were intended. And little by little, they went up to 40% and eventually to 50%. Again, about two-thirds of people who received treatments improved significantly, but recovery, 50%. This is one of the reasons that I'm saying that we're about halfway there in terms of knowledge. We can treat successfully 50% of people in routine care. Now, in summary there, in terms of treatment, we need to implement evidence-based treatments widely. We need to train therapists to administer treatment as tested. And we need to train many more therapists because, as you saw in the slides from Dr. Lakin, most people with depression, even people with suicidality, do not receive treatment. Uh, the reason that I, one of the reasons I joined Palo Alto University is that Palo Alto University trains about 100 psychologists, we graduate about 100 psychologists a year, doctoral level psychologists, 70 in a PhD training program, and 30 more in a PsyD training program, which we run uh, jointly with Stanford University. So we can uh, bring 100 more uh, doctoral level psychologists to the field to help to deal with, with depression. But we need to do much more than that. And I'll talk about that more later in the talk. I'm going to move now from treatment to prevention. I want you to imagine what would have happened if we had just waited for people to get COVID-19 to provide treatment. Imagine if we had not prevented cases of COVID by teaching people what they could do to avoid getting COVID. Using masks, washing hands, physically distancing, avoiding being in indoor places with other people, and of course, getting vaccines and boosters. In the mental health field, what we do is we wait for people to become clinically depressed, for example, before we provide them any kind of treatment. Prevention is not provided routinely in the mental health system in the United States and throughout the world. We need to learn from what we've learned from COVID to prevent depression and other mental, emotional, and behavioral problems. We need to begin instituting 
prevention. Now, I first heard about prevention 50 years ago, September 1972. I had just arrived at uh, the University of Oregon in Eugene. I had just graduated from Stanford University and was ready to begin my five-year program to get my PhD in clinical psychology. One of the first talks I attended to was on prevention, something I had never heard about before. And the speaker chided us, saying, you know, we psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers sit in our offices and we wait until people are suffering enough to have to come to see us. We should be going out into the community and sharing what we've learned as mental health professionals with people in the community to prevent their developing the problems and bring them to treatment. Now, when I had arrived at the University of Oregon, I had fantasized that I would become a therapist and open an office on Mission Street in the Mission District de Barrio in San Francisco, where I had grown up as an immigrant. Um, and here this man was saying that doing therapy wasn't enough. Uh, I could have ignored him, of course, I had a lot to do in the next five years, but I found the message so compelling that I decided then and there that I would devote half of my time from then on, not only to treatment, but also to prevention. And so that's part of what I'm going to be sharing with you today. So, Three years later, I published my first publication, which was titled The Prevention of Mental Disorders. I published this with Jim Kelly, one of my professors at Oregon. Um, but we were way ahead of our time. In 1975, there was very little evidence that we could in fact prevent mental disorders. We talked about the potential for doing so. By 1984, the state of the science was such that the National Institute of Mental Health published a report called Depression, What We Know, in which they stated that in general, the onset of a clinical depression cannot be prevented. Now, a few years later, I received an invitation from the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine in Washington, DC, to participate in a consensus committee on prevention of mental disorders. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with the National Academies, it was, pub it was uh, established in 1863 by Abraham Lincoln. And it invites experts in the fields of science, engineering, and medicine throughout the country to review what's known in those fields and to advise the country on what we should be doing for the benefit of the country. The first committee that I uh, participated in was in 1994. By the way, the catalog numbers here, if you want to, if you're interested in downloading these, these are available from the National Academies Press, nap.edu. And if you enter the catalog number, you can download the PDF at no charge. Anyway, in 1994, the report was titled Reducing Risks for Mental Disorders, Frontiers for Preventive Intervention Research. At that time, there was insufficient evidence to show that we could prevent mental disorders. But by 2009, when the second report came out, uh, it was titled Preventing Mental, Emotional, Behavioral Disorders Among Young People. And that report showed that we, in fact, now had evidence that we could prevent many mental disorders. 
And in 2019, the last uh, report is titled actually Fostering Healthy Mental, Emotional, and Behavioral Development in Children and Youth. And now there's evidence that we can actually promote healthy development in addition to preventing mental disorders. Uh, because of the work I, I did with the National Academies, I was able to publish this uh, article uh, in 2012 called Major Depression Can Be Prevented, together with uh, Bill Beardsley and Jan Laking, uh, my colleagues. And there was enough evidence now that we could actually prevent cases of major depression. Um, the 2019 report, among its many recommendations, recommended that we implement what we know and that we focus not only on individual interventions, but also on the family, community, and societal influences. The same year, in 2019, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, which is a body that is charged with reviewing the literature to find out whether there are preventive interventions that would be helpful for uh, the U.S. population. In an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association, they recommended that clinicians provide or refer pregnant and postpartum persons who are at increased risk of perinatal depression, meaning depression before and after birth, to counseling interventions. This was the first time that there was a recommendation to prevent depression. In a, an accompanying article uh, on the same issue of uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association, there was a review of all the studies done preventing depression uh, during pregnancy and postpartum. And over all the counseling trials, the average reduction in onset of major depressive uh, disorders was 39%. But in addition to that, the uh, study also identified two interventions that reduced 50 or 53% of cases of major depression in women during pregnancy and postpartum. One of them was based on interpersonal psychotherapy called the ROSE program, and the other one on cognitive behavioral therapy called the Mothers and Babies course. Now, I was very happy when that occurred because my, my colleagues and I had developed the Mothers and Babies course at San Francisco General beginning in the year 2000. We conducted a pilot randomized control trial funded by the National Institutes of Health and we found that women at risk for depression who were receiving prenatal care at San Francisco General Hospital, most of whom were uh, Spanish-speaking women or African-American women, 25% um, of them who received usual care developed a major depressive episode, compared to 14% in the women who became students in our Mothers and Babies course, our preventive intervention. Now, these are some of the women and the babies. The babies were in their womb when the mothers took part in our depression uh, prevention course, the Mothers and Babies course. And of course, these are the reason that we do this work. It's not the numbers, it's not the articles. It's the fact that we can help people, the mothers in this case, to avoid the suffering caused by a serious depression episode. And of course, the babies too, because the babies also suffer when the mother is depressed. If you're interested, in what the Mothers and Babies course is about, you can download the manual we used in that study from our website. Again, you can point your cameras, um, your smartphone cameras, and uh, to the QR code on the left here, and you can download it if you would like. They're available in Spanish, English, and Greek.
And I wanted to also share with you that these are being used in many other places, including Tanzania and Kenya. Just uh, research conducted in Kenya and Tanzania has shown that many mothers are at risk of stress and depression during pregnancy and after the birth of their baby. These new mothers often suffer silently for the fear of the shame that comes with it or the judgment that comes with it. And for women in the low-income countries where the project is implemented, access to mental health care services is also often limited. So the Mothers and Babies course is a community-based mental health intervention that helps those mothers and pregnant women and caregivers of children below two years to understand depression or stress what causes it, how to regulate their mood to manage the stress and improve the relationships that they have with their children. So these uh, interventions are being used elsewhere, and but we're not using them, even at San Francisco General Hospital. Luckily, Dr. Lisa Fortuna, who is the current chief of the Department of Psychiatry, and my colleague, Aline Barrera, are, are developing a project now to bring back the Mothers and Babies course to San Francisco General Hospital. Uh, where it was initially developed. Uh, the goal of prevention, the goal of prevention is to share what we've learned in terms of treatment of depression, teaching people mood management skills using cognitive behavioral approaches, which I'll describe in a second, so that although all of us have ups and downs with our mood, that's common daily, when people have stressful events that bring their mood down and cross the threshold to serious depression, which requires treatment to bring them back to normality, we should be offering these preventive interventions before they cross that threshold. Because once people cross the threshold into a clinical depression, it, it's very disabling, and the likelihood of having a second episode goes up to about 50%. And if you have two, it goes up to 70% and more. So it is really important to prevent the first onset if at all possible. And why should we wait until people are clinically depressed to teach them these mood management skills? Why not teach them to everybody so that they don't even need preventive interventions so we can promote healthy development? Now, what happens when you become depressed is that you lose interest, you do less, your thoughts become very depressive, and what we need to do is to activate people, to increase their activity level, increase the way that they're thinking in a, in a healthy manner so that their mood actually becomes better. That's the basic idea be, be, be behind both prevention and treatment. Now, the approach that we use is called cognitive behavioral therapy. Cognitive refers to thinking and behavioral to what we do. So the idea here is that what we do and what we think affects how we feel. We teach our patients and uh, our students in prevention courses that our emotions affect what we do and uh, how we think, but luckily the opposite is also through, true. So our thoughts can change how we feel and what we do can also affect how we, how we feel. And by using this, we can help people manage their mood better. And of course our thoughts affect what we do and what we do affects how we think. Uh, so this is the main, main focus. Now, when I learned cognitive behavioral therapy in Eugene, Oregon, I trained treating people who were part of that uh, university town. Most of them were white. Most of them were employed. 
and well-educated. When I came to San Francisco General Hospital, all of our patients in San Francisco General are very low-income individuals. Most of them are minorities, Latinos, Asians, uh, African-Americans, and so on. Uh, many of them don't speak English. Some of them don't have papers, so they're, uh, they're not documented here. And uh, of course, all of them who come to the hospital are ill, which is why they seek healthcare. So it was a very different population than the population that I trained with in uh, Eugene, Oregon. So I began thinking that just changing their thoughts and their behaviors wasn't enough. They needed to reshape their day-to-day -day reality. So I came up with this idea of the healthy management of reality. And we teach our patients and students in our mothers and babies course and other depression prevention courses that we live in two worlds. The world of our mind, what we call our internal reality, and the physical world, the world we share with others, including our, our bodies, they're part of the physical world, and we call that the external reality. And what we teach is that the cognitive behavioral interventions can shape both of these worlds. So we can use our thoughts to construct our internal reality, to, to make it healthier for ourselves, and our activities, what we do to shape our external reality. So it's the same idea again. Our, our feelings affect what we do and what we think, but we can use our thoughts to change how we feel and our activities to change how we feel. And of course, our thoughts can also affect what we do and vice versa. That's the basic idea behind this healthy management of reality approach. So how do we do that? How, how do we teach people about their thoughts? How we teach them that they can construct their day-to-day -day mental reality with their thoughts. Many of our patients and people who participate in our preventive interventions have some questions as to how our thoughts can affect our body. Right? So we have an, an experiment that we generally suggest to them, which you can do now if you would like. The experiment is the following. Imagine that you have a lemon, a very tart lemon on your hand, and you cut the lemon in half. And now you bring the lemon closer to your mouth, and then imagine that you bite into that very tart lemon. Most people who do this begin to salivate. Yeah, their salivary glands begin to work, and they feel saliva coming in their mouth. There is no lemon, but the thought of the lemon, the imagination of the lemon can have an impact on your physical body. And then we teach that thoughts that affect how we feel are having an impact on, in our brain. Uh, the chemical interactions in our brain are being affected by the thoughts, just like our salivary glands are affected when we imagine this tart lemon. And so then we begin teaching them that there are at least two types of thoughts. Helpful thoughts that give you energy, that help you gather strength to deal with difficult situations. Ways of talking to yourself, the way you would talk to someone you love. As opposed to harmful thoughts that drain your energy, make you feel weak, hopeless, and helpless, and that speak to you in ways that someone who wants to hurt you would say, telling you that you're worthless, that you're a failure, etc. And identifying both types of thoughts and increasing the frequency of the helpful thoughts and decreasing the frequency of harmful thoughts. We also teach in the Mothers and Babies course that 
mothers and fathers and everybody around the child is helping to construct that child's mental reality, their internal reality. In this case, for example, the mother is thinking, you're so sweet, I love you so much, and is holding the little girl's hands affectionately. And she says, you're such a good girl. And what's happening in the toddler's mind is that she's thinking, I'm a good girl and my mommy loves me. Imagine if the mother were saying, you're no good, you're worthless, you're a bad girl, <laughs> you know, I don't like you, right? The difference is really important. And this is what we teach in the Mothers and Babies course. And of course, we teach this to mothers who want to become the best mothers they can to their, to their babies. One other thing that we teach is that at any moment in time, you have three choices. Imagine that each of these vertical lines is a moment in time. And this leftmost circle is now, the current moment. Right now, we have three choices. All of us have three choices, even those of you who are listening now. At this moment, you can choose to think or do something that will improve your mood, leave it as is, or make it worse. Once you've made that choice and you move on to the next moment, let's say you've made this choice, you have three choices. You can think or do something that will improve your mood, leave it as is, or make it worse. And throughout the day, we're making these choices. And at the end of the day, we can end up with a healthy mood if we make these choices, or in a very depressed mood if we make other choices. In the Mothers and Babies course, we have little vignettes uh, to exemplify these ideas. Uh, we begin with these two women who are pregnant, Violet and Mary. Neither of them feels like getting up this particular morning. But Mary gets up, takes a shower. Violet remains in bed. The phone rings. Mary answers the phone. Violet does not. Turns out that it's a friend of Mary's, and they decide to go out shopping for the baby that's coming. Now, at the end of the day, the external reality, the physical body of Violet and Mary are very different. Uh, Violet has been in bed all day, not doing any exercise, probably not eating in the dark, not talking to anybody. Her body, her external reality is very different from that of Mary, who has been exercising, has been having contact with a friend, uh, hopefully had something good to eat, uh, getting some sun, etc. And of course, that means that their internal reality is very, very different. This is what we're teaching, how to learn, how to manage your reality, both mental reality and external reality. So this is the actual page in the Mothers and Babies manual. If you're interested in more of these ideas of the healthy management of reality. I have written a small book that's available at no charge for downloading from our website um, at i for health at Palo Alto University. Uh, and again, you can use the QR code if you'd like to, to get there automatically. So I've talked about treatment, I've talked about prevention. Now let me talk about technology. In 1978, when I began working at San Francisco General Hospital, I had published a book with my dissertation chair, uh, Dr. Peter Lewinson at the University of Oregon, and two of my uh, fellow graduate students, Tony Sice and Marianne Youngren. The book is called Control Your Depression. And NBC, the television network, asked us if they 
could videotape us teaching the ideas in the book to adults in the community. And they edited down these videos to 10 four-minute segments, which were shown in the noon, 6 o'clock, and 11 o'clock news at NBC throughout the country. Now, when they were shown in San Francisco, I gathered together a little army of undergraduates from UC Berkeley. And we contacted people via phone the week before the two-week period when these were shown in the news in Channel 4 in San Francisco and the week after to see whether symptoms of depression could be affected by something as simple as 10 four-minute segments on TV. And what we found is that for people who had very low symptoms at the beginning, it didn't matter whether they watched the segments or not. No differences. The, the blue refers to people who watched the segments, red people who did not. But for people who had high symptom levels at the beginning, those who watched the TV segments actually dropped down significantly more than those who did not. Now, this is not a randomized trial. It's a uh, naturalistic study, but it showed the potential of sharing these ideas via mass media and that these ideas could actually have an impact on depressive symptoms. Now, what we want is to scale up, as we've shown you in the slides that Dr. Lakin uh, made available to us. Most people with depression have no access to treatment. We need to reach anyone in the world who needs preventive and treatment interventions. And so we did a proof of concept study as to whether using the internet to help people stop smoking would actually work. Could a web-based smoking cessation intervention match the patch, the nicotine patch? The nicotine patch yields about 14 to 22% quit rates at six months for people who use them. And our internet intervention matched the patch. We were able to uh, get 26% quit rates at six months for Spanish speakers and at a, at a year, 20 and 21% quit rates. So this was amazing to me that we could use these cognitive behavioral methods online with no patches. This is just psychological interventions. And we could actually match the nicotine patch in terms of helping people to quit. But what was really amazing to me was the reach. From San Francisco General Hospital, where we launched this study, we were able to reach people all over the country. Every red dot here represents a zip code that has at least one visitor to our site. But more than that, we were able to reach people throughout the world. Year by year, we were getting more and more people coming to our site. And we were doing this only in Spanish and English. Imagine if we had been doing it in many other languages, we would have been able to reach, of course, many more people. So this is what convinced me of the potential of technology, specifically the World Wide Web, digital tools that can reach people either through websites or apps now, in order to help people, in this case, quit smoking, but we can also help people to prevent depression and to reduce symptoms if they already have a major depression. Now, when I began this work in 1997, remember the web, the World Wide Web uh, was launched in the early 1990s. So in 1997, when we began this work, we could only reach 70 million people, which is less than 2% of the population at the time. We are 8 billion people now. And as of this year, we can reach 5.5 billion, which is 69%, 69%, two out of three people in the world, we can reach through the World Wide Web. 
we need to pay attention to this and to use this power to help as many people as possible. So my colleagues and I have suggested that uh, being inspired by MOOCs or massive open online courses, which are available to people anywhere in the world, usually at no charge, to develop massive open online interventions that provide psychological interventions that have been found useful to help people uh, throughout uh, the world in terms of smoking, depression, alcohol problems, and so on. Now, going back to the UK uh, project, uh, the, the report on psychological therapies, one of the uh, uh, reports showed that live therapies, cognitive behavioral therapy, behavior activations, brief psychodynamic psychotherapy, and interpersonal psychotherapy yielded as we've said before, somewhere between 44 and 54% recovery rate. So about 50% of people who receive live therapy uh, recover. But the people who run this study were surprised to find that computerized cognitive behavioral therapy had the highest yield. 58% of the people who received computerized cognitive behavioral therapy recovered. So we should not assume that digital interventions are inferior. That is an empirical question. But to understand these numbers, well, you need to know that in the UK, they use what's called stepped care, which means that people who have milder forms of major depression, in this case, receive the least intensive interventions, in this case, computerized CBT. So the people who receive computerized cognitive behavioral therapy were the people who had milder cases of depression. And if they did not improve, then they were assigned to life therapists. That's part of the reason why they had such high rates of recovery. Another reason is probably because computerized CBT provides the therapy with great fidelity. There's no drift because the computerized version always provides therapy the way it was intended. So if we can help 58% of people who have the milder forms of major depression, we should make this available worldwide, at least nationally. Why not? We should be doing this. And of course, if 58% of people with mild depression can benefit from digital interventions, then we could also use them for prevention because people with, who, who are eligible for prevention have relatively mild symptoms in this case of depression. So we've also suggested that we should build these digital apothecaries, online uh, places where there would be massive open online interventions, uh, interventions for depression, for alcohol problems, for smoking, for obesity, other health problems that can be addressed using behavioral interventions, making them available. And at Palo Alto University, we opened up the first digital apothecary we call Silicon Valley's digital apothecary at the Palo Alto University, and uh, you're able to, to get there if you'd like, again, using this QR code. Uh, and we have a number of studies that we're doing using digital tools in Spanish, English, Chinese, um, the depression screener again in, in Russian and Arabic in addition. So you're welcome to come and uh, participate in these studies. Now, I want to talk about a project by the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. Two years ago, I was invited to chair a group of experts on digital tools that work for children and youth. This study was funded by the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, uh, and it was 
implemented by the National Academies. What we were asked to do is to put together a set of videos, short videos, teaching people cognitive behavioral uh, interventions to deal with the stress of COVID. So this is the, the page uh, where, where people come. Uh, it's in, uh, available in Spanish, uh, in Spanish and English. And there's a short video that explains how these work and it's a cognitive behavioral intervention. Again, teaching that what we think and what we do affects how we feel. And we teach several uh, skills. We have five videos for teens and five for children. Um, relaxation training, belly breathing or deep breathing, mindfulness training, calming your mind, behavioral activation, doing fun activities and cognitive interventions what we call catch, check, and change your thoughts. And there are five videos for youth and teens uh, sharing these skills and five for younger children and their parents. And these are also available as PDFs that you can download at no charge. And the idea here is that some people don't have access to the web. So for example, schools, pediatricians offices, uh, mental health centers, churches could download these PDFs that explain, in this case, for example, how to use deep breathing to a child and print them and make them available to the families they serve. Now, if you're interested in checking these out, again, you can go there. It's the nap.edu slash wellbeing hyphen tools. Uh, and again, you can use the QR code if you'd like to get there quickly. Dr. Blanca Pineda, who is a, a colleague of mine at Palo Alto University at I4Health, and I have launched this study to, to evaluate the videos. We're asking people, it's an anonymous study, we're asking people to watch as many videos as they want and rate them to see how practical they are, whether they think they would be helpful for ch children that they work with. So we ask teachers, pediatricians, uh, parents, of course, um, to participate in the study. And again, you can use the QR code or come to our uh, Silicon Valley's digital apothecary and uh, log on. We're also conducting, Dr. Pineda and I are also conducting this study in which we're asking people to tell us which thoughts and activities they found useful in dealing with the stress of COVID. And this study is being done in Spanish, English, and Chinese. And again, we welcome your participation. It's totally anonymous. So we have indeed come a long way. Remember, in 1984, the National Institute of Health said that the onset of a clinical depression cannot be prevented. By 2012, science had changed enough, had progressed enough, that we now could say that major depression, in fact, can be prevented. But how effective does it have to be to disseminate this population-wide? Let me give you an example of the flu vaccine. The flu vaccine is effective by about 40 to 60% in the overall population when the flu viruses are well matched to the flu vaccine. A couple of years ago, it was only 30% effective. And yet still, we ask people to get these vaccines. Now, I've shown you data showing that, in fact, we can prevent about 50% of cases of major depression in people who are at risk. Why not make this available population-wide, just like we do the flu vaccine? Now, is it possible to prevent more than 50% of cases of major depression? I feel fairly sure that we, we can reach at least 50%. Could we reach more than that? Now, Meta-analysis, which are uh, studies in which they look at all of the uh, randomized controlled trials that uh, have been 
uh, done to see if we could prevent depression show that uh, we can prevent about 19 to 21% of cases across all these studies. But there are some interventions, the coping with depression course, which was developed by Peter Lewinson at Oregon, and of course the perinatal depression studies that I showed you earlier, that can actually reach 38, 39%. And as I mentioned before, the ROSE intervention, the mothers and babies course, can prevent about half of cases of depression during pregnancy and postpartum. But I recently found a couple of studies that go beyond this. Uh, one that is a phone intervention, a group intervention via the phone for caregivers, informal caregivers who are taking care of their families, that reduce depression by 75%, the onset of depression. And then another study with older people with insomnia that showed that they could reduce the onset of depression by 83%. So let me show you those studies briefly. This one was done in Spain by Fernando Vasquez and his group. And uh, they had three groups, a group that got usual care, 33% of them developed depression within three years. Uh, but the groups that received cognitive behavioral or behavioral activation interventions, only 8.6 and 8.7% developed a depressive episode. That's a 75% reduction. And then this other study was done with older adults who had insomnia. They randomly assigned them to either a cognitive behavioral therapy intervention for insomnia or a comparison group that got sleep education. The comparison group, 25.9% of the people developed a major depressive episode within three years, compared to 12% for the CBT group. But the authors looked closer at the data and found that the people who had responded well and no longer had insomnia in the cognitive behavioral therapy group had an 82.6% decreased likelihood of depression. So, it looks like there are ways of getting beyond the 50%. But that leads us to the people for whom current prevention interventions are not effective, and of course for treatment interventions, because not everybody uh, responds well to treatment either. We need to expand our focus beyond individual behavioral interventions to address social determinants of health. The 2019 National Academies report specifically said that we needed to go beyond, beyond individual interventions and look at community and societal issues. For example, we note that nurturing environments are important to promote human well-being. And we note that poverty can have a major impact not only on mental, emotional, behavioral health, but also, of course, on physical health. And many of us in the health field say, well, you know, poverty is not something that we should deal with. It's not a scientific issue, it's a political issue. But in fact, uh, in 2019, the Nobel Prize was given to economists who had conducted controlled trials to fight poverty. So it can be done scientifically. What they did is they ran six randomized trials in Ethiopia, Ghana, Honduras, India, Pakistan, and Peru with over 21,000 adults and they found that they could reduce many aspects of poverty. And here I'm going to show you only the measures of mental health. If, you, if the lines here are on to the right of this dotted vertical line here, that means they found significant improvement. And three out of the four variables that they looked at in terms of mental health showed significant improvement. It's clear that we can do this and we should be doing more to look at these issues beyond individual interventions. So what to do? We need to train therapists 
to administer evidence-based treatments with fidelity and avoid drift. We need to train more therapists. At Palo Alto University, of the 100 uh, therapists that we graduate each year, now 12 or more of them are being trained at Clinica Latina, a clinic that we uh, have for the community in which we can provide Spanish language treatment. So that means that we're training 12 or more of our students out of the 100 every year to provide treatment in Spanish, which is very badly needed. But we need to go beyond training therapists who receive graduate degrees because receiving graduate degrees takes a long time and it's very expensive. We really need therapists as quickly as possible. And places like India and uh, Zimbabwe in Africa have very few therapists, much fewer than we have here in, in the US. And they found in randomized controlled trials published in very prestigious journals that lay health workers can administer evidence-based interventions effectively using what they call the friendship bench in Zimbabwe. They have trained elderly women in Zimbabwe to provide evidence-based treatments. And they have become called community grandmothers. And they do therapy outdoors under trees on these friendship benches. And in strict randomized control trials, they found that these lay therapists can actually have outcomes that are similar to those of doctoral level therapists. We need to do this in the US as well, because we have very, very few therapists. Uh, with COVID, the rate of depression has gone up very high. Recently, a friend of mine who had lost his husband uh, asked me to try to find a therapist for him. I called one of the main clinics in San Francisco and was told that there was a one-year waiting period for therapy for depression. I mean, that is not acceptable. That's why we need to train more therapists, including lay health workers. In addition, we need to make prevention widely available, right? I mean, we need to train people who know how to provide prevention in addition to treatment. And we need to have insurance pay for mental health prevention. Right now, most insurance only pay for therapy if you meet criteria for, for example, a major depression. We need to routinely offer preventive interventions as the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force has recommended. And we also need to harness the power of technology to reach more people with prevention and treatment interventions. Now, you've heard about thinking globally and acting locally, right? That's very important. As I began this talk, I mentioned that depression is the number one cause of disability worldwide. So at San Francisco General, some years ago, in 1985 to be exact, two of our trainees in the clinical psychology training program, Ginny Miranda and Sergio Aguilar-Gagiola, and I, founded a depression clinic with help from some of our colleagues, Dr. Jackie Persons, who was a volunteer faculty member, and Chuck Garrigas, a social worker who worked at Langley Porter Institute in San Francisco. And we began a depression clinic um, as a training clinic. For 10 years, we offered individual and group therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, to Spanish and English-speaking patients of the hospital. And we did this as a training clinic at no charge to the patients for 10 years. At that time, the Department of Psychiatry enlarged this clinic and now it's a full uh, 
clinic that provides services, mental health services to patients at San Francisco General Hospital, and it's now in its 37th year of operation. So it's important to think globally and act locally as we did in terms of creating this depression clinic. Um, and of course, also the mothers and babies uh, course and so on. But now because of the advances in technology, we can also share globally. So the manuals that we developed for the depression clinic at San Francisco General are available on our website and they can be downloaded by anybody in the world. And people have translated these manuals into Greek, Persian, French, Finnish, German, other languages. And of course, the, the uh, treatments in, in, uh, in Africa as well, as you saw in the video. So we share these globally, but the limit for these manuals is that they require a live person to administer them, which is why I also recommend that we use the power of technology because when we can provide an intervention online, there is no need for training therapists in countries throughout the world. The intervention itself can be used directly by people who have access to the web. Now you may ask why focus globally, you know, we have enough to do locally. Well, one of the reasons that I'm so motivated to do this is because I was born in Peru in South America in 1950, right in the middle of the 20th century. Uh, I grew up in a town called Chosica, which is 40 kilometers east of Lima, going up into the mountains of Peru. Now, for those of you who know Peru, the, the western part of Peru, the coast of Peru is a desert. And here is an overhead picture of Chosica. As you can see, the mountains are barren absolutely no vegetation. The only source of life for Chosica and towns uh, along the river valley is that river, which is called Rimac, the river Rimac, R-I-M-A-C. When I was 10 years old, my mother sat me down and said to me, your father finished primary school, I finished high school, and we want our children to go to university, but we do not have the money to send you. So your father has decided to immigrate to the United States where there are many educational opportunities. And when you finish your education, we'll come back to Peru so you can share what you've learned. She taught me two things that day. The first one is that education and knowledge is so valuable that it's worth traveling halfway across the world to obtain. And the second thing she taught me is that once you obtain it, you should share it. And that's what I've been trying to do throughout the last 50 years try to share what I've learned with people at San Francisco General Hospital, now at Palo Alto University, and throughout the world using our websites. This picture also symbolizes something to me. I see the internet as a river of information, just like the river here brings life to this town and tens of thousands of towns across the world like Chosica. And we can use this river of information, the internet, to bring evidence-based interventions to people in towns like this. A couple of years ago, I received an email from somebody in Chusica asking me if I was the Ricardo Muñoz, who went to primary school there in the 1950s. And of course, I re replied to her and said, yes, I was. So I have actually reached Chusica, as my mother suggested. And But more than that, now I've been able to reach people all over the world, which I would not have imagined when I began my doctoral program back in 1972, where there were no computers, no websites, no smartphones, but now there are. 
and we need to begin to use them in order to blanket the world with preventive and treatment interventions to protect as many people as possible from preventable depression. Thank you very much. Uh, I look forward to uh, questions um, and I hope these ideas are ideas that some of you will be able to actually help to improve. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.